0: You're on Team Human. This is a special episode of the show that we recorded live for the Impact Festival in Utrecht, Holland just a couple of weeks ago. Before we get to it, I want to let you know all about this week's bonus episode for Team Human supporters, a conversation I had with filmmaker David Lynch back in 1986 when I was just finishing at the American Film Institute and Lynch had just made Blue Velvet. I'm clearly still a developing thinker but I'm hoping the value of the conversation outweighs my own embarrassment at the sort of questions I asked as a confused 20-something. We're also doing a special supporter-only Team Human Live online on December 1st with award-winning dancer, choreographer, and philosopher yin Mei Critchell. You can find out more at teamhuman.fm, click on support, or at patreon.com slash teamhuman. When you support us on Patreon, you'll also gain access to a special archive of conversations with people like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna, and the ability to participate on our Discord and other special bonuses. Please join Team Human members like Meg Cox, Michael Kiyoshi Salvatore, Palana Belkin, and Jackson by visiting patreon.com slash teamhuman to support now for as little as $2 a month. Also, entrepreneur and host of the Should This Exist podcast, Katerina Fake, she visited me at Queens College just a couple of days before the COVID-19 lockdowns for a special conversation for her podcast episode on digital sequestration, Should This Exist, which is available right now. Visit waitwhat.com or search for Should This Exist on your favorite podcast provider. And now, this week's Team Human. on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, coming to you alive from the Impact Festival in Utrecht, Holland. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs, This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, investigative journalist for The Nation and Foreign Affairs, the author of Pandemic, as well as the just-released The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move, Sonia Shah. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Before we bring out Sonia Shah, I thought I'd share a little bit about the Team Human project and where we're at. Team Human began as the assertion of human autonomy in a digital age. We're living in a world where billions of dollars are being spent to design software and platforms that control our behavior by technologists whose stated goal is to replace us all together with AI. Google's original motto, don't be evil, may as well be don't be human. It's become the underlying ethos of Silicon Valley and the world they're building for us. To separate from the teeming masses. To build walls. In 2018, speaking to a handful of hedge funders, I learned that the main thing keeping them awake at night was the impending event, be it the environmental collapse or social unrest, a Mr. Robot hack, or even an unstoppable virus that takes everything down. So these guys, they hire futurists and climatologists to develop strategies for different scenarios. They purchase property in Vancouver, New Zealand, or Minneapolis, these regions predicted to be least affected by rising sea levels or terror strikes or, most frightening of all, mass migrations. Others, they're investing in vast underground shelters and security systems and indoor hydroponics to withstand a siege from the unruly world. And the most energetic billionaires we know are there developing aerospace and terraforming technologies for an emergency escape to a planet as yet unspoiled by their own extractive investment practices. It's their own personal migration – So taking their cue from Elon Musk colonizing Mars, or Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, or Sam Altman and Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into the supercomputer, the wealthy, they're preparing for a digital future that has a whole lot less to do with making the world a better place than it does with transcending the human condition altogether in order to protect themselves from the economic and social and environmental damage that their own business activities have caused. For them, the future of technology is really about just one thing, escape. Even the new headquarters of the biggest Silicon Valley firms, they're built more like fortresses than corporate parks. They're micro-feudal empires. They're turned inward on their own private forests and gardens and protected from the teeming masses outside. And those teeming masses doesn't matter if you're on the the BLM side or the MAGA side. Uh, Those masses are us. These solar Powered hilltop resorts and chains of defensible floating islands or robotically tilled eco-farms, they're less last resorts than escape fantasies for billionaires who aren't quite rich enough to build space programs like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk do. These prepper billionaires aren't aspiring to live in a world depicted in The Walking Dead because they're horrible people. They're simply succumbing to the dominant ethos of the digital age, which is to design one's personal reality so meticulously that existential threats are simply removed from the equation. Where did this ethos originate? How did the hopeful countercultural drive towards cyber utopia end up as a survivalist nightmare? And what can we do to wake ourselves up and to steer our highly digital society away from self destruction? That's what Team Human is about, and this episode in particular. When did the other, however, we mean that, become less intriguingly sexy than? it is a threat. If you go back to Torah, which is the first, and to the Jews anyway, the most holy five books of the Bible, you'll see it has a lot to do with our transition from a nomadic people, a migratory people, to a more sedentary one. That's really the story of Exodus, how a bunch of nomadic shepherds migrated from the Sinai down to Egypt during a famine. These were immigrants, then slaves, and 400 years later, they were seen as a threat by the pharaoh. He was so scared they would multiply or revolt that he started killing the male sons. So they escaped. We know the story. They went back to the desert for 40 more years. They were supposed to go to the promised land, but God, the God of the Bible anyway, he made them wander around in the desert for a whole generation. And the Torah itself actually ends before they get into Canaan. Moses doesn't even make it there. So the holiest of holy books leaves the Israelites still wandering in the desert still migrating. It's almost as if that's the holiest comportment for human beings, kind of unsettled, non-territorial, you know, certainly not locking down a digital fortress, protecting oneself from the others, but in a permanent state, a, a dynamic state of flux, always moving, always open, always welcoming of the stranger because, we're always strangers ourselves. And this state of being, the, the migrant, is what Sonia Shah is reclaiming and celebrating for all of us in her new book, The Next Great Migration. It's my pleasure to welcome one of Team Human's true all-star players, Sonia Shah. Hi, everyone. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. I'm wondering, first, you know, your last book, and you wrote it a, a few years ago, Pandemic, which I, I read the first half of it after this. And I'm wondering, are you experiencing a little bit of I told you so? I mean,
2: it's very frustrating. I wish there was even a little bit of that feeling of uh, this is exactly what I said and you guys should have listened to me. But it's really not like that. It's just It just feels so incredibly frustrating that, it, and it wasn't just me. The reason I could spend four years writing a book about how microbes use social and political and environmental forces to turn into pandemics is because people knew how it works there's all of these experts and scientists and and case studies and anecdotes and research showing how that process unfolds and so you know that's why a science journalist can write a whole book about it and among other people so this was all things that we knew was coming and in fact really we've been living through pandemics all along it's just we generally are able to ghettoize them in marginalized populations so that those of us in the kind of industrialized... Uh, in the wealthy classes don't really have to think about them but you know throughout we've had HIV going on HIV pandemics we've had a cholera pandemic going on we still haven't tamed all the old pandemics of the past malaria tuberculosis cholera all those things are still going on despite the availability of cures and and like we know exactly how to prevent these things you know still hundreds of thousands of people you know are getting sick and dying of of all those other diseases You know, the fact that it happened here is like we've been just like pulling that, you know, the slot machine handle down again and again and again. These are probabilistic events. And so eventually this was going to happen. But it's still always shocking, right? Like, even if you know something's going to happen, when it actually does, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe, I can't believe I fell through that open door, you know? <laughs> so
0: so there's a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that with the, the whole digital thing is for me, you know, since the early 90s, I've been saying, don't let capitalism take this over or it's going to be bad. And, oh, well, capitalism didn't want to listen to that. <laughs> no. So the pandemic flows so naturally into the Great Migration, because one of the fears of migration, certainly right now with the China virus, um, is that oh the Chinese are going to migrate here with their with their dirty viruses and give it to us again. That goes all the way back to, back to biblical times. Oh look, there's the lepers. They're going to bring this. They're going to bring that. This fear of of disease from the other. I'm, I guess I'm wondering what because you you started writing this obviously before the pandemic. What was your your initial urge really to write? the next great migration. I know you're a first-generation American, and in some ways, you're not at home here or back in India. Was that sort of part of that that what motivated it?
2: That was part of what interested me. But the way I got into this was actually following up on my pandemic research when I had finished that book in 2015, or I came out in 2016. I finished it in 2015. And this was right around the time of the quote, unquote, migrant crisis in the Mediterranean, when all these people are coming over from Syria and Afghanistan, and they're drowning in the Mediterranean, and it's all over headlines, and the borders are all closing in Europe, and all this was happening. And I thought, populations are on the move. These are people who are moving from places where vaccine programs have probably broken down. They're, you know, failed states in a lot of ways. People are under a lot of stress. They're moving into places that have a totally different disease environment in terms of immunity and the things, you know, the kinds of uh, pathogens that are around commonly. And so to me, it's, this seemed like a, a setup for more outbreaks, that this could be you know, this could kind of aggravate a public health situation. And so I went to Greece to report on the migrant crisis from that angle, thinking, okay, you know, what are the public health risks going on with this this mass movement of people? And, you know, what I learned was that every assumption behind that idea was wrong, essentially. You know, like this idea that these migrants, because they're moving, that they would be introducing new diseases into a place is exactly wrong. In fact, migrants are usually healthier than the host populations they enter, which, you know, if you think about it for two seconds, makes sense, because it requires good health and resources and resilience and, and all of those portable kinds of capital to be able to successfully migrate. But, you know, the reason migrants become unhealthy to the extent they do is because they're treated so badly once they get to the places they're going to. So so really, this whole idea of a migrant crisis was all wrong. It was a crisis of welcome, a crisis of reception, not a crisis of migration, per se. And when I started realizing that, I wanted to kind of go back in my own mind of, you know, I'm the product of, of long-distance migrants myself. I'm not a xenophobe. And yet I am kind of reflexively had this negative take on migration, just like everyone else did, right? Like people are moving around, it's a migrant crisis. You know, we don't even think about, okay, is it good for the people who are moving to move? Is there absorptive capacity in the countries, in the societies they're going to? Is it better for the societies they leave behind? Maybe it contributes to resilience there if they move. These are all things you would want to consider if you were actually trying to decide, okay, is this migratory flow kind of, you know, net benefit or net negative, we don't even do that. We just say, oh, people are going to move because of climate change. People are going to move because of war. People are going to move because of sea level rise. It's a crisis, right? So so that's what I wanted to kind of go back and interrogate in this book.
0: Right. And it's also, I mean, the, the thing that the book does, I think that the biggest effect of the book is, is it makes me realize that, thinking of human beings' default state as being in situ, you know, (laughs) that our default state is being stationary, it's really recent. It's like, you know, I always say with people with employment and jobs, like jobs were invented just a couple hundred years ago. We never had jobs before. Employment's modern, you know, and everyone thinks if you don't have a job, you don't, it's not worth being alive. It's sort of that way with well, what country are you from? Where do you live? As if, well, there's us and we're here. And then there's these few other stragglers who then try to migrate. It's like, no, 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 migration. Talk to any indigenous person. Migration is the natural human state. It's the wonder is how we've been able to survive this long with people not moving, you know, not moving around. Or,
2: Or just how we've had this total habit of mind that the norm is to be still and to be rooted and to be sedentary. You know, if you look at a broad sweep of history, you're absolutely right. Movement is the norm. You know, staying still is the thing that's weird and that really needs explanation, you know. But the whole way we talk about migration is that it's exceptional. It demands explanation. So, if it's a migrant, we have to know why are they migrating? Is it are they an economic migrant? Are they a are they a refugee? Are they a asylum seeker? Are they uh, looking for a job? Is it a family? Is it chain migration? You know all these ways in which we are expressing the fact that. Migration is the weird thing that we need to explain somehow, because that's the thing that's sort of anomalous and rare. When, in fact, every step of the way, as we've learned more and more about our own migratory past, the role of migration in nature, uh, what becomes clear is that migration is central To our experience, and not just us, like a lot of other species. It's how we have survived and adapted on a planet that has been continuously changing.
0: Right. But you make the point, you know, early on that while animals tend to migrate because of nature, that human beings, at least in modern times, human beings tend to migrate because of weird abstract problems, political things, uh, profitable or unprofitable things, you know, that our migrations are spawned by, by political abstractions rather than anything real.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, there's a way in which you could think about wild species is also being affected by those kinds of dynamics. I mean, those are po- power dynamics within our species, right? Like, it's some people in Washington, D.C. saying, well, you can't move across this invisible line I drew right here, but you over there, you can. You know, so those are all kind of power dynamics within our own kind. And I think we just don't know enough about wild species to know that, OK, when the storks are deciding who gets to go on that route to, you know, Sudan and who gets to go on that other way, maybe it's power dynamics for them, too. You know, we, we, we don't know. But, you know, certainly for us, we know the way we move around is not shaped by the most convenient way or the most geographically uh, reasonable way to get from A to B. It's all shaped by our politics about our, you know, our power relations with each other.
0: But that's gotten reinforced by the kind of naturalism that we were taught in school is like, there's new world monkeys and old world monkeys as the Chinese Panda. There's the, you know, the, the American Fox. And therefore there's also those African people come from there and the Eskimos come from up there as if there's this natural correct place for things. And if they move around, you get an invasive species and it kills all your plants. So stay where you're supposed to be.
2: I mean, it's it's really incredible that we've decided that nation states, which is such a modern thing, right? The whole idea of a nation state is such a modern idea. And then we're ascribing this to wildlife and to like plants, and, you know, and, and, and creatures that have been moving around and. You know, what we're recovering, what scientists are recovering now is how much even those species that we think have been there for, you know, millennia, well, they've all moved around too. You know, there's this idea of the camel, for example, that the camel, you know, we think of the camel as so kind of rooted to its place that it kind of stands in for that place. The camel, Middle East, yeah, that same thing on the little maps you draw for a kid, it's like you can draw a camel and that means Middle East, or you can draw you know, a peacock, and that means South Asia, or a bear, and that is North America. Like, it's exactly the same thing, the place and the animal. But in fact, you know, camels are, you know, originally from North America, that's where they originated, they're more common in Australia, they're actually wild in South America. You know, there's this complicated backstory, and all the rootedness that we see, it's a snapshot in time, you know, so it's, it's just right now, some of that might be true or in the last, you know, decades of our whatever our kind of perspective is of right now is, but in the broader scheme of things, or it really just depends on what timescale are you looking at where are we from? You know, where am I from? Am I American? Because I live, my body's on the North American continent or South Asian because two generations ago, that's where my people were from or somewhere in Africa where we all were originally and probably
0: went to a million places in between. It's almost arbitrary. It's like, where do you put the starting place? Like they say with technology that everyone thinks of bad technology as whatever technology came up after their own childhood, right? You have this arbitrary starting moment. Everything else is newfangled crap, right? I like television and transistor radios. And it's like, and damn, if anything else is gonna interrupt that. But that sense of origin which, again, we know was mythological. There's no such thing as an Italian. Maybe they were Venetians who came from that city. I mean, cities were more like beehives or, you know, termite nests or something. They were sort of natural amalgamations of people in localities working together. Then some emperor or king comes and says, okay, here's the lines, everything in this, you're not Venetians, you're not Milanese, you're all Italians, you know, in a nation state. And then people who are born that year think, that's what I am. This is where I'm from. But there was no thing that you were from before, right? <laughs> it's- we used to we used to live quite normally with just fuzzy
2: edges, you know. So we had communities, but there's just like fuzziness in between the communities, you know, just like a gradation of difference that kind of goes on continuously over time, changing a little bit here and changing a little bit there. And now it's so it's it's such a deeply rooted like paradigm to think about the differences between us as being discontinuous, you know, that there's just like a clean break, this part is America and this part is Canada and this part is Mexico and this part is that that alone is 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 an artificial thing we've come up with but it's amazing how deeply we've embraced it you know and we've incorporated into our all of our ideas about uh, nature about history about our place in it and all of that
0: right it's it's them you know <laughs> it's them and it's like there is no them there's just lots of us you know there's us over there and us over here but that perspective, particularly in America, of, of immigrants, Mexican immigrants, South American immigrants, as, as if it's like a spider in your yoga studio. Oh, no, <laughs> it's contaminated my room. What do I do? Do I get it out? Do I put it in a cage? You know, because what's it going to do? You know, but that fear of, you know, and scientists as you were, scientists supported this superstition you know they they acted as if this was scientific truth how how dare they how did they how did they get there you know to look at at migration as this disaster
2: in my book i trace that m- historical moment back to linnaeus the swedish naturalist in the 18th century said okay, I'm going to name everything in the world, all the plants and all the animals and all the peoples. I'm going to give them a name and uh, we all can use this one name. And he basically decided, well, wherever I see things are right now, that's where they always have been and will always be. And He came up with that idea, not through any kind of interrogation of what was actually going on, but just because he thought nature was an expression of God's perfection. So, you know, if he finds this one salamander in this one forest in Sweden, then that must be where God put it, and it must be in a perfect place. And if it's perfect and God put it there, it must have always been there, and it must always will be there. So for him, everything had to be perfect already. That was his a priori assumption. Basically, he wasn't thinking about migration, but his idea just erased the possibility of migration.
0: Right. He didn't talk about, you know, as you describe it, like the chain migration of armadillos across the isthmus of Central America, I guess going up to... North America from the... You described it. It was like, I'm thinking about these little armadillo families. And it's like, oh, our family made it all the way to Costa Rica. And then the next eight generations of armadillos make it to El Salvador. <laughs> the next, But that they that animals moved like that. You know, that those continents were separated. Then the sea level went down and the isthmus arose. And then things started walking across. I was like, oh, right. And people too. You know, duh. But if you don't think about people as moving, which most of us don't, you know, you think of as so stationary. You don't have this. It's such a, a brighter, flexible, more resilient, less competitive worldview because nobody's owning land. They're just moving through it. And that's why I was trying to say in, in the sort of the opening monologue that your relationship with the stranger is so different. If you're not defending a piece of territory, you know, it's another another traveler another traveler on the road, which is why so much of the sort of the ethical code that they tried to write, that the Israelites tried to write as they became a sedentary people was, look, welcome strangers. You know, (laughs) you're going to get fertility from all these women from other cultures. Let them come. But, you know we never learned, of course. And you were writing about sort of the late 80s. And I remember those moments in the late 80s, when the Berlin Wall fell, and Mandela got released from prison, and the European Union looked like it was going to be a cool thing. And the Czech Republic had their their revolution. And it seemed like something new was happening, and that there was going to be a new kind of less national movement of people. But then it, it, Turned on itself somehow. I'm wondering if you can explain why was there this negative reaction to such a a melting of false boundaries?
2: I I don't think there is one answer, and I'm certainly not equipped to answer fully that question. But but you're right; there was that sense of walls are coming down, and now it's just the opposite, where we have more borders or fortified with walls and fences. And at any time in the past. That's happening right now. You know, when I look at the most recent history of sort of the rise of right-wing populists and this whole movement against people on the move that's happening right now, I see a couple of things combining. One is that migration patterns are changing, um, and that's because of the climate crisis. Uh, You know, people are going to have to move into new places, and that's already happening. And so I think as people in the West start to realize that, you know, that that has rung some alarm bells of, oh, okay, brown people are going to come up into these white places, and and that could be a problem for us. And then you also had this highly spectacle of uh, after the Syrian civil war unleashed all these people coming into Europe. And of course, this was a minor flow of migration in the broad scheme of things, right? Like many, many more people are moving between countries in Africa, for example, or between countries in Asia. Um, You know, more of them are moving into places like Jordan than trying to get to Germany. So this is just like a spectacle, a myopic kind of spectacle of one tiny flow. All this migration has been going on behind the scenes that nobody's really noticing. It's not capturing headlines. And then you suddenly have this extremely picturesque and dramatic bottleneck in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea, this is a place where a million reporters are they're happy to go there and report on what's going on in the Mediterranean, right? So you just have this huge spectacle. And I think that combined with this awareness of like migration patterns are changing. And this seemed like exactly The embodiment of that, you know, the whole national security apparatus had been warning that climate change is going to unleash this tsunami of migrants over the wealthy parts of the world. And that was very, you know, lightly veiled racial kind of rhetoric around that of like, okay, all these poor brown people are going to swamp us. And, and that's tapping into some really old, old, ideological, sort of reflexive ideological stances. Um, so I think when that happened, it just provided a great opportunity for a lot of right wing populists to come into power and say, hey, look, this is what I I told you, this is what going to happen, we're going to get swamped by brown people. Put me in office and I'll pull up the ladders, you know, and that's and that's what we've
0: seen. Right. And it's not even all meant. A lot of it's cynical. Like, you know, you point out how they changed the statistics of migrant attacks, if they can't even call them that, immigrant violence. So it used to be that an attack was an attack, but now if a group threw like 10 rocks, It counts as 10 attacks because each stick, each rock counts as a separate attack.
2: Oh, no, it was even more than that. This is this is what the Border Patrol did. So so Donald Trump comes into office and his most coherent position, if he has anything, is xenophobia, racist xenophobia. I mean, he's all over the place, but that's the one thing he says he's really going to do and that he seems to actually kind of do, right, actually implement. And so, he has to justify that. Like, that's how he gets into power, because it's very easy to drum up xenophobic sentiment. It is right at the surface. You know, you just have to scratch a little and poof, you know, and this all comes out. So, he gets into power doing that, and then, of course, he has to justify it somehow. So... He has the border patrol or, you know, through his minions, the border patrol starts to pre- produce these reports saying, oh, these border crossers coming over from Mexico. They're very violent and border patrol agents are dying and they're getting attacked and attacks have gone up at this like, you know, very the steep, you know, these graphs with a steep incline. And then later, investigative journalists are like looking at these numbers and they're kind of doing the math and figuring out that. It used to be five people threw three sticks at two Border Patrol agents, and that was one incident. And instead, they changed the math so that each stick thrown by each person at each Border Patrol agent was one thing. So from that one incident, you get like 20, you know, 20 assaults, and it, t- it inflates their numbers. And this was, the, this was happening across the board in right-wing, you know, in places led by right-wing populists. They were bringing these inflated, absolutely concocted numbers to try to justify why they had gotten into power. That, you know, act as if these asylum seekers and migrants were actually some huge problem, which they, A, really weren't, and B, also the numbers were totally absorbable in most places. Of course, there's some places that couldn't absorb as many m- new migrants as they got that's possible. But in general, these are huge societies that m- many of them had labor shortages and housing openings, you know, so there's plenty of places for these people to go. If we just had actually absorbed them and welcomed them, it probably would have happened and nobody really would have noticed if you, because this is the other thing, of Douglas, is, is integration and assimilation works. That's why we've been able to migrate all this time Right? Is because it works. You can live in the plains of South Asia and walk up to the Tibetan plateau where there's not enough oxygen, and you can learn to live there. You can take someone from the Brazilian rainforest and put them in Northern Europe, and they can learn to live there because we're fungible. That's
0: the whole point. Right, and our bodies are. I mean, there's what you mean too, that biologically we are. I go to Denver, you know, and after a week I'm making more red blood cells. My body figured out how to adapt to that because it was, I mean, meant to is a little biblical, but you know what I mean? It, it's resilient and flexible. And no, it's not like, oh, you're one of these, so you're supposed to live you're supposed to live over there. It's like send me to Tahiti, I'll figure I'll figure it out, you know, pretty fast. The resistance to migrants, the resistance to immigration. You, later in the book, you kind of, you broke it down into sort of three main reasons Why we resist uh, that. We blame them for violence. We fear insurrection and we blame them for diseases. And I was looking back and I looked all the way back, you know, to because I'm into Torah this week with Torah, you know, with the Egyptians violence. Well, the first thing they did was they blamed Joseph for raping Pharaoh's wife. Oh, they're violent. Look at them. They stick him in jail. Insurrection. Pharaoh said it directly. They will turn on me. They're going to multiply. There's going to be too many. They're not going to agree with me, and they're going to have a revolution. And disease is the lepers and the, and the insects and the, the fear of disease. And it's come right through right through to today. Violence? Oh, M3, whatever they are. MS-13, they're going to, you know, rape your wives. I'm going to save your suburbs from these, you know, Mexicans that are going to are gonna come in, you know. Um, insurrection. Yeah, they're going to steal the vote. They're going to go and vote Democratic. All the illegals are going to line up. We need to go there with guns and stop them from doing that. And then disease, of course. All oh, the China virus and everyone's going to come in from South America with, with COVID, you know, where they actually have secretly high rates, unlike us. So it's from as as far back as you can go into the current day, it's these same three features. And what you've done, which is which is so important, is you've dispelled each one of these. You've dispelled them culturally, historically, and then even biologically and genetically. It's just not even scientifically true. You know, but we keep coming back to them, you know, and I keep wondering, do we keep coming back to them? Is there some thing that we have to look at? Is there some part of human nature? Or is it just the way we're being programmed by, you know, the the rulers and dictators?
2: I mean, I I think it's both. Because on one hand, you're right, it's, it's very easy to aggravate xenophobia. You know, and like you said, you know, we have these old ways of thinking about outsiders that are negative, and it'll come back in an instant. Once somebody starts talking that way, it's like reflexive. But at the same time, There is so much migration going on all around us, all the time, which is beneath the surface and which works, which we accept completely. It is the blood in our veins that we don't even notice. So all the millions of people who are moving around the world today and who are n- not in the headlines, who are not the unfortunate few who get scrutinized, but are actually allowed to just move and melt into other societies that they move into, you know, that's happening everywhere. That's happening all everywhere. I mean, except for a few closed societies, that's happening all over the world. And that's been happening For centuries. So we have a huge capacity to accept new people because we don't even notice, you know, we don't even notice some of them. They just come in and they just become part of a new society. I mean, look at Donald Trump himself, is the son of an immigrant. His mom came over as a domestic worker from Scotland. She had no money. She worked as a maid in New York. Her son is president. We don't even think of him as an immigrant. Right. We don't even think of, he, he's he has shed that like a snake skin. It's just gone. You know, he's American. So that just speaks to how easy it is for us to forget all the migration that's going on. And, you know, that migration actually does work almost all the time. So really, the exception, I think, is the situation that we're talking about now where you have a potent xenophobic sentiment that's rationalized through these arguments that, you know, you scratch the surface and it's like, OK, that none of those things actually hold
0: up. Right. Or even that we have to use the language of, oh, look, our society is capable of absorbing this many immigrants. It's not like oh we I'm going to absorb them because it's a stress. It's like no, we're capable of being enriched and 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 changed and expanded and and multiplied by the influx of fresh new blood and ideas. You know that's that's the lesson they keep trying to give you in in the Bible when the you know they're losing fertility, they can't make any more babies, and then like Ruth shows up or Leah or somebody comes in, some foreign person or the Midianites come, and it's like each time there's. Always somebody who says, uh-oh, those are brown people or they're different, but then the woman always saves the whole friggin' civilization from itself. You know, so it's it's always migration that seems to save the day. And I know we're nearing the end of our time. I'm really interested in the future of migration and how global warming will both instigate more migration, but perhaps be alleviated by migration. You know, that people are looking at, okay, there's going to be climate change, that's going to lead to mass migration, and then that's going to create civilizational collapse. But I'm thinking it might be the opposite. Like climate change is coming, it's going to catalyze more migration, and the migration might actually help us kind of rebalance civilization in a certain way.
2: You know, we, we, don't, we don't do a lot of things over and over and over again that are bad for us on a population level. Those kinds of behaviors tend to die out. And yet we migrated again and again and again and again, and not just us, but all these other wild species too. And the reason for that in sort of a broad sense is because the benefits have outweighed the costs. This is not to say that there aren't costs. There are costs up front, especially in the beginning, but the long-term benefits are so huge. You have the, you know, the resilience that's introduced, the the introdu- introduction of diversity and innovation, all of those things. And genetic diversity, cultural diversity, intellectual diversity, all of those things. It's this process of moving into a new place, adapting to it, developing novel ways of living and then bringing that diversity into other places. So you, it's this constant, you know, it's this fabric. It's a, it's a dynamic that continues, and that's, that's what gives us the resilience. So as we enter this climate crisis, people are going to have to move because we are scrambling the habitability of the planet. There's a lot of places where people aren't going to be able to live adequately anymore. So we can either we can look at that as a crisis that we can, you know, try to stop, we can build walls and and close the borders and trap people in those places. Or we can say, well, okay, the climate change is a crisis for sure. But the migration that it triggers could be part of the solution, not the crisis. What if we embraced that you know, and if we did, it was it wouldn't be to say, oh, it's all good, it's all great, and and there's going to be no problems. It's to say this is something that has long term benefits for us. Let's try to manage it as a human reality, you know. And if we do that, we can minimize the costs and maximize the benefits, just like we do with every other part of human experience that has costs and benefits. Having children, you know, getting sick, like these are all things that have costs and benefits, but we manage them because it's part of the human condition. And it's part of the, our experience. It's how we survive. And I think migration needs to be brought back into that fold that it is, you know, we have to reclaim it as really central to how we're going to survive the climate crisis.
0: Right. It's only unnatural when it's, when it's got the backdrop of unnatural nation state boundaries around it. When we look back to the butterflies at the beginning of your book that are slowly migrating up the hill you know, to a better spot for themselves you know, and proving that animals migrate because of climate but migrate successfully, um, it's like, oh, this is just the way this is just how things happen. This field dried up, so we walked over there. And then the salmon were over here, so we go there every April. Then we go down here because the guavas are coming off the trees. It's like, this is not rocket science. It's just a basic movement of of Ja people, as it it were. The thing I wanted to close on, which was so um, team human-esque for me, was the, the research that you I mean, I would say uncovered. I'm sure it's there for anyone to see, but, you know, none of us read anymore. The DNA mitochondria stuff was all new to me. The idea that, that, that when they analyze the DNA and mitochondria, it, it turns out that people separated into all these different kinds of people much, much more recently than we thought. I mean, I would think, oh, right, they, these ones came out of Africa like a million years ago or something, but it's not, it, not at all. You know, so the people that we thought of as other are actually just us.
2: Yeah, so you don't even have to go back that many generations of people who are exist who are alive today, we only have to go back like not that many generations to the point where we all have a common ancestor. You know, it's 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 not that long ago that maybe a thousand generations ago, we all had a common ancestor. So you know, in this in this really kind of profound way, we are w- just, we are one big family. Of course we are, right? Like, that's what a species is. That's that's who we are. The other amazing thing about it is that, you know, when we walked out of Africa, there was this idea that we walked out of Africa and, you know, the planet was unpopulated and so we just populated all the continents and then we just stayed still for millennia until, you know, we we got like steamships and stuff like that and started moving around fast again. <laughs> well, actually... We know from paleogenetics now that, in fact, when we walked out of Africa, there was people everywhere already, all these other human species that are now extinct. And we assimilated with them. That's why we have their genes in our DNA. And then we didn't stay still. We kept moving. So people moved out of North America, s- settled there, met some other people who were there, mixed with them, went back to Asia, went back to Africa, went back to, you know, in and out, these complicated migratory routes in the past when it wasn't even easy. And they're just as complicated as our migratory routes are today. So that I think that really tells you something about what migration means for our species.
0: It it also reminds us of just how close we are to each other. You know, the theme of Team Human has always been find the others, you know, as it find the others and then connect with them. And what you're sort of showing me is that there really are no others. There's just lots and lots of us. And once you start to see it that way, Uh, gosh, it becomes a whole lot lot more fun and less threatening to welcome other people into our worlds. Absolutely. That was perfectly put. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sonia Shah. Everyone, get The Next Great Migration. It's a super important book. So thank you. Thank you, Douglas. That was really nice. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Sonia Shah, author of The Next Great Migration. You can find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paying supporter of this show. Patreon subscribers get free access to events and our Discord channel... And they get the bonus episode every other week with people like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna and and David Lynch, all sorts of stuff that we've been pulling out of the archives. So please do support us if you can. Otherwise, we'll see you in in, uh, two weeks, I guess, right here at TeamHuman.fm. Am. team human is produced by josh Chapdelin. it's edited by luke robert mason our community manager is michael bass and i'm douglas rushkoff this was a special production of team human live from the impact festival in utrecht holland thanks for being on team human our last best hope for peeps